GovX Show, a weekly interview series with some of the leading lights of public sector transformation, both here in the UK and around the world, as we count down to the conference of the same name in November. I'm James Smith, Content Director here at GovX Digital. When I started off covering digital government around 20 years ago, whew, government agencies were involved in a digital land grab with everyone laying claim to their corner of the internet with a shiny website and expensive logo. In those early days, quantity had a quality all of its own. It was really only about how many e-services you had, with attention to usage and satisfaction only coming later. So it was against this backdrop that the work of the UK's government's digital service was a step change of approach. Back in 2011, they were set up to transform the delivery of government services and led the charge to digital by default, which resulted in the consolidation of the UK government's digital real estate into a single web domain with internationally recognized best practice user design. GDS is both much admired and internationally emulated, as many of our speakers at the November conference have been telling me. So it is fitting to share with you this interview with Lord Francis Maud, who during his time in Cabinet oversaw the establishment of Government Digital Service, and further than that, through his work with the Cabinet Officers Efficiency and Reform Group, focused on making government more efficient with a rigorous focus on cutting waste. During his time in government, Lord Francis Maud delivered £52 billion in savings. Let's hear how he went about it. Okay, well, Francis, welcome to uh, the GovX podcast. It's great to have you join us today. Whilst in Cabinet, you helped establish the Government Digital Service, consolidated just under, I think, 2,000 websites into a single gov.uk domain, which then obviously transformed the user experience and set a new global standard for digital government. All of this at the same time as driving efforts to find £52 billion in cost savings. So that's quite a list. Uh, and I'm really interested to unpack some of these achievements for the benefit of listeners and also to help our audience get to know you better as we begin the countdown to the GovX conference in November, where you'll be joining us as uh, our keynote speaker for the first couple of days of the event. Uh, so welcome to, to GovX. Thanks very much. It's great to be with you. Great to have the chance to share some thoughts with you um, and, and your listeners and watchers. Uh, and also looking, really looking forward to the event um, later this year. Great stuff. Um, so let's go back briefly to 2010, uh, just as you were getting started with the Efficiency and Reform Group. What did you sort of take away from previous attempts to reform the machinery of government under perhaps Blair and under Thatcher before that? What did you copy? What did you think you would try to do differently? And, and how did the, the game plan really emerge? Because you were starting off with, I suppose, a, of a black sheet of paper. Well, I suppose the key thing we realized is you've got to, do, you've got to move fast um, and you have to be very single-minded about it. Um, and we now, we now work with uh, governments around the world on how to support reform programs effectively. Uh, particularly fiscal reform, but public sector reform more generally. And, you know, there are four things that hold back reform. One is um, political pushback, and that can happen. Um, wasn't particularly a problem with what we were doing, because what we were doing was supported by ministers, and there were, um, uh, the, and, and in terms of the public political response, it, it was enthusiastic for what we did to the extent that anyone knew about it. Um, it was well regarded. Um, second um, thing that derails is vested interest resistance. And there was plenty of that from within the system. Um, 
The third is inertia, sort of bureaucratic inertia, and that's just a fact of life. And that will, you'll find that not just in the public sector, but in big organizations generally. Uh, but the fourth, and people rarely focus on this, is the, la and we didn't really have enough feel for this at the beginning, is the sheer lack of technical capability in government uh, to get difficult stuff done and, and you know, capability in the, what we think of as the horizontal functions that run across government. So procurement, IT and digital, um, running property and real estate, uh, running major projects, huge um, a huge issue. Financial management, simple financial management. Um, there, um, all of these functions are sliced up into the different vertical silos, and there's no generally single place where there is a hardcore critical mass of technical capability. And of course, that's what we started to do to create what we now talk of as as the functional model. But we were really making it up as we went along. I say, I mean, did you expect to have the, the impact you did or did a lot of these opportunities that got delivered upon emerge as you went along? We didn't know, really. I mean, it was, I'd been in government before. I had sort of fairly senior positions in the Thatcher uh, government in the late 80s and early 90s. Um, but I'd been out of government for 18 years. Um, we didn't really know what to expect. Um, the Blair government had tried to do some reforms of the civil service. I mean, there were some things that Tony Blair had announced as kind of hard decisions, which we found had simply not been implemented. I mean, he announced in 2004 that in future, all senior civil service appointments would be for a fixed four-year term. Simply didn't happen. I mean, it just didn't get implemented. And, and that's the thing, you know, I mean, what we always say now is working out what to do is not that easy but it is only 10 percent of the challenge 90 percent is how the hell are you going to make it happen how are you going to overcome yeah. those kind of four um uh things that can derail reform um and we we were working it out as we went along there was no textbook we were kind of writing the textbook no one had ever done quite what we were doing um, in a in a major government before. So that, that 52 billion pounds, I mean, it obviously it's always, it's always very tempting to lead with that. I mean, it's such an eye-wateringly large number, um, but if we can look, try to look beyond the, the big sum sure. of money, what what of the, the, the achievements of, of that period do you look back on most fondly? What are you most proud of? Um, I think the digital transformation um, was huge and, and, you know, I, I was um, I was the enabler of that, not the not the driver, but but I think you know you talk to Mike Bracken and and Mike and I, I think are doing a number together at um, at, at your event um, later this year. And Mike brought together a brilliant team who provided leadership, technical cap capability, and credibility, and a vision uh, for how digital government could be. And we went from being a government uh, in 2010 that was notorious, I mean, infamous around the world for big government IT program car crashes. I mean, we had the most expensive government IT in the world, um, but, um, but, but a terrible record. Um, and the technology that civil servants were being asked to work on was shockingly bad. I mean, it was uh, the effect on productivity 
of public servants was, was dreadful. So we went from that, um, um, from when we set up GDS early 2011, I guess, um, to in 2016, the UN ranking Britain the best in the world for e-government. I mean, that was quite a turnaround. And Mike and his team would say that um, they needed the kind of top senior cover that I was able to give them. Um, so I think we're collectively uh, very, very proud of, of what we achieved there and the way it was picked up by, you know, the Obama administration created USDS following what we did. Uh, Malcolm Turnbull in Australia, likewise, um, the gov.uk source code has been used by New Zealand, Israel, other, other governments as the kind of source code for their own uh, single government web um, presence. Um, so that, but the other two th th things which kind of slightly got noticed less was we had a very aggressive um, uh, open data program, open data and transparency program, where we were absolutely, again, single-minded on releasing data sets. Governments sit on vast quantities of data um, and, um, and, and they hoard it um, and they don't use it well and the quality of it isn't very good. And we had a very aggressive open data program which led to, again, several international, respected international organizations ranking us the, the most open government in the world. And I'm, I'm, I'm proud of that. The other thing, I suppose, which again got slightly lost, lost um, in the mists of time, is we, um, we, we, were, we blazed a trail on social investment, making social investment start to be what it has now become, which is a kind of mainstream um, uh, uh, line of, of investment, sort of semi-philanthropic, semi-financial investment in social outcomes. And we set up the world's first social investment bank, um, Big Society Capital. Um, and again, that's that sort of started something which has been picked up in other places. So there are various things we, we did which were were, were quite groundbreaking, really. So touching upon the, the open data aspect, uh, was that driven simply by a belief in transparency for its own sake, or was, was there a sort of an economic angle? How can we release value into the, the private sector by opening up sort of a lot of these data assets that government sits on? Um, it was um, initially totally driven by the transparency agenda. Steve Hilton, who was very influential in those early days of, of government, um, of the Cameron government, um, was very focused on this and, and we assembled and I'd had conversations with various people before um, and uh, the, uh, Gordon Brown in fact had appointed uh, Tim Berners-Lee and Nigel Shadbolt to advise the, the government on uh, open data. Um, I, I kept them on, we created this transparency board which I chaired, Tim and Nigel were on that with some other experts and we used their expertise to knock down the arguments that were put up, we tapped into this uh, rich vein of creativity in government, people producing reasons why data couldn't be uh, released. You know, national security, commercial confidentiality, privacy was always a good one to scare the politicians, um, and um, the legal reasons. Um, and um, at the end of it, they would say, well, Minister, the, the data isn't very high quality at the moment, so we need time to 
um, improve it. To which my response was, publish it, and you'll find it gets better quite quickly. Both the crowdsourcing um, uh, effect, but also the sheer embarrassment of, of releasing data that's manifestly poor quality. Um, but the economic impact was was considerable, and we didn't, I think, really appreciate how how powerful that was. But you know, I think two two of the things we did that um, were, were a big stimulus to Britain becoming such an important uh, tech hub um, were one was um, that I mean, creating this raw material for data-related uh, tech businesses, so it made the UK a great place to, to operate because we created this sort of you know, uh, free-for-all, really, literally free-for-all um, with data. Uh, but the second thing we did, of course, was to open up procurement. You know, in um, um, 2010, 87% of the government spend on IT was with um, seven providers, you know, multinational providers. Uh, we and it, the system was almost deliberately set up to freeze out small and newer um, tech businesses, providers, vendors, and and so we opened that up, and uh, and and that was a huge stimulus. I mean, I've had um, businesses say to me, "We used to be an SME, but because you opened up government procurement and enabled us to bid for and win government business, we're now." Um, we're, we're now kind of creating jobs. We're now employ a thousand people, whatever. And that's, you know, that was powerful. A powerful economic effect from both of those things, I would say. I mean, it seems churlish to to to, to ask you uh, to to look for things that, if not quite regret, that you might choose to have done differently. But looking back, what 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 are the paths you didn't take that perhaps you wish you had done? I think. Um, we were not radical enough with civil service reform, um, but there probably wasn't an appetite for it. Um, um, and certainly when we started on civil service reform, uh, the prime minister was not then ready for it. He became ready for it. And that's not uncommon, actually. Um, new prime ministers, you know, this, um, um, they, get, they see the best of the civil service. Um, and they don't see um, what the rest of it is is, is like, you know. And, and and I'm often accused of being hostile to civil servants. I'm not at all. I think we have brilliant civil servants in the UK, but I think the civil service as an institution is deeply flawed um, and, and needs serious modernisation and, and, and reform. Um, but uh, I think we should have been more radical um, with that. I think generally we should have charged ahead more, um, but but we should have done things faster. Um, and you know, we I mean there are loads of kind of blind alleys we went down, but again there was no textbook. We were doing things that that hadn't been done before, and we've sort of slightly retrofitted since. Now retrofitted a strategy onto what we did in a very practical way. I mean, we we develop what I came to know the the JFDI school of government um, just do it um, you know write the write the strategy afterwards don't wait till you've got that and this is a problem governments tend to have it they want to have a perfect plan and a perfect um, 
um, um, analysis before doing anything. And actually in the real world, you just have to get on and do things um, and work um, and, and stop doing it. If it doesn't work, build on it if it does, but um, we're not very good at that. I got a sense of that from uh, Michael Goh's recent Ditchley lecture. Uh, I think I detected a lot of continuity, frankly, from, from where you left off. Uh, and some of the common themes were obviously the importance of, of bringing expertise, which you mentioned, yeah. uh, accelerating decision-making delivery, which was just mentioned, um, a willingness to reorganize, uh, and perhaps, you know, not most controversially, but certainly perhaps the biggest challenge, uh, increasing the, the acceptance of risk across the public sector. Yeah. Uh, what, what were some of the key takeaways that you took from, from his remarks? Oh, I think that, that you picked on, on, on two of them. Um, and uh, I think the risks, uh, risk and innovation thing, um, you know, no one loses their job for, because they continue to um, uh, preside over an inefficient status quo. But try something new that doesn't work and it can really, you know, wreck your career. Um, and great institutions know that they learn at least as much from the things that are tried that don't work as they do from the things that do work. Um, and if you're not trying th new things that don't work, you're not trying new things, actually. Um, and, you know, Singapore, you talk, mentioned Singapore earlier. Um, the, in, I remember on the wall of the civil service college in Singapore, uh, there's a, a little plaque with a quotation from some obscure um, former public servant there, which reads something like, it's the duty of every public servant constantly to question and challenge existing ways of doing things and find ways to improve. Now, our, in, in the culture in our civil service is still one where you don't really have permission to fail. Um, let alone an obligation to be questioning and trying new things. Um, and and it's, so that culture that that statement in Singapore was capturing is actually the, con the, is the reverse of the culture that uh, we've all observed and Michael was talking about in his Ditchley lecture. But the second thing is, um, and, and we haven't really gone anywhere to sort, sort this out, is that there needs to be parity of esteem in the civil service between um, the policy civil service, as it were, the kind of classic mandarins, um, uh, for which you know uh, who are essential um, and who are very good, the best of them are very very good indeed, um, <clears throat> and the and the people who are more technical and operational. Um, the top jobs go to people who are mandarins um, and. Um, and, and typically their former treasury civil servants. Um, and um, actually Mark Sedwell was unusual in being one who wasn't actually a classic Mandarin. He came from an operational background. Um, but um, uh, my, uh, and, until you have a situation where half of the departments have a permanent secretary uh, who is from an operational or technical, commercial, financial, whatever background, um, and only half of them come from a policy background, you, you're not going to change this. And, um, but, so, uh, but that's, you know, that, that's a big, it's actually a relatively easy thing to do. And the symbolic significance of it and the signal that it would send through the system would be powerful. But uh, I haven't, I, I'm not seeing any appetite for that at the moment.
So obviously GDS is itself a, a great example of what's possible with a more agile, iterative, and dare I say, I suppose a, a risk-on approach. Yeah. Um, and you obviously you provided, as we've discussed, the school will to, to see it through. So from your experience, how hard will it be to change the risk profile of government? Really hard. Um, I mean, this is, and this is, again, it's not limited to government. Um, uh, great institutions um, have to work hard at creating a culture. The, the natural resting state is a culture where failure is bad and we can't have failure. Um, so you have, to, you have to really try hard to create a culture where failure is encouraged. I mean, I'll give you an example of how difficult this is. Um, because I used to bang on about this to um, permanent secretaries. Uh, and so one of them said to me, well, why don't you, why don't you institute uh, an award uh, at the civ annual civil service awards for failure? Um, so I thought it was a good idea. And I, um, and, I and I wasn't brave enough to call it the Francis Maud Award for failure. Um, <laughs> um, but um, the and the rubric for it was you tried something new it didn't work you stopped doing it and you made sure the organization learned from it uh, which is kind of the classic thing you want to be happening um, and there were 80 nominations for it and 79 of them were for things that had worked which both illustrated and missed the point um, uh, so yeah i mean i think you have to try very hard i mean you know, um, um, some firms. You know, um, uh, uh, what's the what's the Google mantra? Fail small, fail fast. Try new things all the time. Facebook, move fast, break things. Um, um, and some tech is, uh, companies will have uh, every month. You have a failure day, where everyone brings out their dead, as they were, as it were, and you and you expose the things that you've tried that didn't work because that's how you, that's how you normalize it and make it acceptable and learn from it. Um, so yeah, this is a massive cultural thing and I don't sense that there's anything really material being done to address that at the moment. I've heard you, I think previously, talk about uh, the role of procurocrats uh, and how the, the, the systems of government, uh, particularly in obviously procurement, can have a stifling effect on the ability of government to, to work with more innovative, smaller businesses and bring in expertise from outside. Uh, what was your experience of that? And do you feel that, that that's still an issue facing the public sector today? Uh, it's got a lot better. Um, my, um, the, this word I coined, procurocrat, was really to capture the sense that there were the, the, a lot of the so-called procurement professionals um, in government were uh, process professionals. They understood the process. And, you know, the reality is that when you're in government procure in procurement, there are three stages to what you do. There is the pre-tender market engagement, engagement um, you know, engaging with suppliers, um, in market intelligence, um, understanding what the possibilities are, then there's a very formal tender process which has to be um, done properly and openly and, and uh, with high levels of probity and integrity. Uh, and then there's contract management, 
but in the procurocrat world, it's only the middle part that ha it has the focus. Um, and they, and we had procurement pro tender processes which were ludicrously protracted and lengthy. Uh, but you had people without the kind of commercial experience or the or the knowledge and confidence and stature to do the first phase, the market intelligence and supplier engagement in an in an effective way, and then contract management uh, was regarded as a kind of dull thing that could be left to junior people, and it was about sort of process and you know we'll get lots of data from the suppliers and. If we're getting lots of data on performance, then it must be fine. Well, actually, um, I mean, in another government, we found one contract where the vendor is required to was required to provide, I think, fifty-five different bits of data every month. Well, the people running the contract in the government weren't going to look at all of that, but they were certainly paying the supplier to provide all of that. Um, and that's just, you know, that's just a lack of commercial uh, capability. In the UK government, some of that's got a lot better. Um, um, I think um, uh, we, we set in train a program of certification of procurement professionals, commercial professionals around government. Um, and um, they had to, um, uh, and, you know, plenty of them were well qualified. Uh, plenty were not, and some of those um, left the procurement roles, either moved out of the civil service or into other roles for which they were better suited. And some went through proper training and and um, equipping them with the skills they needed to be to be effective. So I think the procurement, the commercial profession around government um, is 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 much stronger um, than it was. I don't know about the wider public sector uh, so much. What I think isn't yet happening uh, properly is using the buying power of uh, government to buy common goods and services really effectively. But you know, that's a, very few governments do that. So yeah, before we move on to the, the next focus, uh, so lastly with risk, I mean, where does sort of responsibility for risk lie in the traditional relationship between uh, civil servants advising ministers deciding so it seems to me as though the risk necessarily belongs to that sort of political layer which which makes those sort of judgment calls how, how do you view that equation um uh I, it's often said that when i we used to go on about the risk aversion um civil servants would say well that's because ministers are risk averse and i'd say that, that just doesn't stack up. I mean, politicians belong to one of the most risky occupations there is. You know, you can, as a minister, you can be fired from your job at literally a minute's notice. Um, uh, you can lose your seat, as I've done in an election. Um, your whole life is exposed to public scrutiny. You know, these are not people who are risk averse. Um, if you're risk averse, you don't go into politics. Um, so uh, that doesn't just doesn't stack up. What ministers are averse to is surprises, um, and, um, um, and 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 what they want to know is what the risk is, and they want the risk to be properly analysed. And the civil service actually isn't all that good at that, um, and um, um, or hasn't been. Um, and um, 
uh, and you know you need to have the best advice so you understand what your what the risk reward ratio of any decision is but the but the lack of innovation is much more in the kind of small things. One of the things we did, and you know, you talk about things I did I'm proud of, and this has kind of slightly disappeared, this program, but creating, creating public service mutuals, where we supported groups of public sector workers to spin themselves out of the public sector into employee-led and owned entities, which were then delivering uh, the service under contract. So it was a form of, of outsourcing, but very much employee-led. Most of the, over a hundred of them did this. Most of them were not decided to be not for profit, totally their choice. Um, but what they all said when I spoke to them, I said, you know, would you go back and work for the NHS? Large numbers had come out of the NHS or the council or the government. Would you go back and work for them again? And the, I never heard anyone say anything other than no. Um, when I said, why not? The answer was always some variant of, because now we can do things. We can see what needs to be done and we can just get on and do it because it's our risk. We don't, we want to do something differently. We don't have to prepare a business case, which then goes into some committee and disappears, you know, into the, into the ether. We never hear anything back. We could just do it. We can, and, and if it works, we carry on doing it. If it doesn't work, we stop doing it. Um, you know, it's kind of, not that not that hard but that was the freedom there is the freedom uh, from a culture which they all felt was where everything was loaded against doing things differently um and and, and changing things and that's part of the kind of iner system inertia i was talking about earlier so bring, let's, let's, let's bring it back to 2020 rather than looking backwards but obviously we find ourselves in very similar territory in 2020 to, to what you must have encountered in 2010. Uh, though obviously we've, we've now banked the, the 52 billion pounds in efficiency gets savings that, uh, that you found. Um, but as we look ahead at uh, likely straightened circumstances for quite some time, what lessons from your experience a decade ago do you think are most relevant for the public sector today? Well, you need to do it all again. You need to go around again all the time and find the next thing is, and I'm, you know, um, people often used to say to me when we were doing this, they say, Francis, when is this, all this reform going to be over? And the answer was never. This will always be a work in progress. Great organizations, you know, there is no such thing as steady state anymore. Uh, you're either getting better or you're getting worse. If you think you're staying the same, you're getting worse. Um, and, um, so there's no business as usual. Um, uh, you're constantly changing. Either you're driving the change yourself or you're changing for the worse without noticing it. Um, and the thing you have to do is look at all these things again, uh, see what's um, relaxing, what's, uh, what's been diluted, uh, where the impetus has uh, been lost, you know, shake it up, disrupt, continue disrupting. You know, I often used to say, that, you know, in the time I was doing all this five plus years ago, um, there was um, uh, the public sector was the only remaining place where disruption was a was a bad word. Um, and, um, you know, we all live with disruption. What most of us do uh, is is disruptive. And we've just been through um, a period or hopefully coming to the end of a period where 
ex exogenous disruption through the pandemic has been mass had a massive uh, impact. Well, let's use it. I mean, let's um, you know find out how we can do things really differently and. and um, and there will be, you know, no working environment is going to be the same ever again. The ways of working are going to be different and potentially more productive as a result of what we all become accustomed to in the meantime. So, so picking up on, on the, the, the theme of disruption, um, so GovX, the conference in November, will be featuring some of uh, what we hope are the most interesting, exciting GovTech startups and early stage businesses from around the UK and further afield. What, what more do you think government can do to open itself up to the contribution of small, fast growth innovators, but whilst obviously managing risk? Um, I think one of the things is, um, uh, and we, we had some attempts to do this that were partially successful, but weren't, we didn't build it on it and, and make it part of the fabric, is a lot of businesses used to say, you know, we got this great idea that can really help the government to do things better or cheaper or more efficiently, whatever. But there's no kind of procurement opportunity for us to pitch it. So I think having, and we did a few kind of sort of competitions, um, but then it needed someone in government, in the relevant place in government, to pick it up and make it something that could be could be done. And I think, um, uh, and as partly we were very constrained by um, EU procurement regulations, um, and um, at, uh, we, which we had made much worse, actually. I mean, not just the gold plating in our own regulations, but then the gold plating in, in terms of how things were done in practice. Um, but I think in the, in the future, we will be able to, you know, what you want to be able to do is... Um, where you see a, a business who's got something new um, that you can use, you need to be able to get them in and get them to work quickly without having a, you know, you need some way of doing kind of single source um, uh, tendering, which you can't simply can't do above a certain level at the moment. Um, so I think there are um, uh, th that's uh, that's something I think which will be a factor because the pay change is just much faster now. Um, I mean, one of the last things I did a year a year or so before I left the cabinet office, I took a dozen senior civil servants to Silicon Valley, and it was partly just to infect them with the sense of the of the possibilities and, and how fast things can change, and you know. And it, and it was very energizing from that point of view. It was, it was, it was excellent. Um, um, but, um, but we need more of that. And, and the pace of change is faster even then. I always remember we had a session at Netflix and I said to the guys there, how often do you release new code? Kind of expecting them to say, well, you know, three or four times a year. And they said three or four times a week. And I said, well, okay, well, how, what's the governance around that? And they say, well, there isn't any. Um, our system, our technology is very uh, modular. Mm -hmm. um, small pieces loosely joined together, to, to coin a GDS phrase. Um, and um, if something new doesn't work, it might slow things down a bit, but it's not going to crash the system. And it's that sense of actually you'd, you'd got to be 
constantly changing, constantly looking to improve, that I think we need to we need to recapture that, and our systems for procurement and so on need to be better shaped to reflect that. So I mean, I think. Uh... The, the latest UN e-government rankings, I think the UK is seventh, uh, which puts us, I think, comfortably at the top of the sort of what you call the large economies in terms of uh, the rankings. So certainly uh, still very much a leadership position uh, when it comes to digital government. Yeah. Um, thanks in part, obviously, to, to your role in establishing GDS. Um, and much of the cost savings were enabled by, obviously, implementing sort of transformative technology. Did uh, government's view of the role of technology change during your, your time in cabinet office? Um, um, I think, it, yes, it's understanding of what we mean by technology. I mean, you know, the, um, my, my friends in the digital world would say it's not, the technology is not the most important thing. Uh, the most important thing is the thinking, I mean, you know, the digital ways of working is is partly about technology, obviously, and you need to know that. And, but actually, it's much more about understanding that things can be done in a completely different way now. Um, and um, so, you know, the, the GDS people would say, you know, the first phase is, is discovery. Work out what's required, what's what's needed, uh, what do the how are the users going to use the technology? Um, so, um, yeah, I think, um, in a, in a funny way, although we became much, much better at technology, the focus on, on the tech part of technology kind of almost reduced, um, you know, the, 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 the sort of CIO world was in government was peopled by, you know, people who did big tech, you know, um, you know, wire and tin and wire and um, and big servers and mainframes and all this kind of stuff. Um, um, the 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 big change in our time was understanding that that's not the world we're moving into. That's the brownfield. That's the rust belt. Um, the the sun belt, the greenfield, is is the internet. Um, and obviously, we're now on to several further iterations of the internet but um it's just a different different uh, world so uh, as we sort of come up to the, the end of our, our hour i just thought uh to bring it further forwards to, to november and talk a little bit about sort of your your role at the the conference so govx is uh, a conference that's really dedicated to government transformation why does government transformation matter Oh, because the governments are so important in the lives of the people of in any country. Um, the government takes and spends a, a substantial proportion of the nation's wealth. It provides services that are crucial to on which many citizens depend, and it, the money needs to be spent well, and the services need to be as good as they can be. Um, so transformation is yeah it isn't again it's going back to the old thing there's no steady state you don't do a transformation and then sit back and stroke it um you um you're constantly changing constantly iterating constantly um 
doing things differently. There will be big sort of transformation moments for sure, but actually the, the, the continuous improvement, which is really the most important thing, is almost imperceptible. So, uh, GovX will be bringing together, oh, it's, uh, it's a lot, uh, about 130 uh, government executives from, from all walks of life, uh, central and local government. Um, and obviously the focus of the discussions will be shifting daily from strategy to delivery and then on to innovation on, for the last day. How do you think those three areas of focus resonate for you? Sorry, so I said, uh, say, say that again. Yeah, so, uh, so GovX is sort of splitting up the agenda across the three days with three consecutive areas of focus, first on strategy, then on delivery, and finally innovation. How, how does that uh, resonate with you, that split? Um, uh, the, the, I mean, strategy is important, but, but um, the, I mean, again, the GDS mantra was strategy is delivery. Um, doing it um, is better than writing about it. Um, and as I say, a lot of the strategy, we, we had a kind of view of what we, where we should go, but actually the key was getting on and doing it. And actually there were a number of things we did and, you know, transparency, mutuals and so on, where the thing in civil servants initially said was, well, Minnesota, you'll want to have a white, a green paper and a white paper and, and some legislation on that. And I said, no, we're just going to do it um, and, um, and see what works and, and build, it from, build it from there. So delivery is key. Of the, I mean, innovation, um, crucial, I mean, but, but again, should be constant. Um, um, but I think there's a danger of, of spending a lot of time producing the perfect strategy, which you then become a prisoner of. Um, whereas um, you need to be you need to be agile, fleet of foot, nimble, um, finding things you can do, doing them. Um, you know, trying to um, not do things that close off options for the for the future because you need to continue to be able to do it. But so kind of just, just as well that we have you as, as the keynote on that, that delivery day of the, the conference, which is great. Um, uh, another one of the, I suppose, the design principles behind uh, how we've structured the agenda, which obviously is being delivered entirely online, is that we are inviting half the speakers to come from overseas. Uh, and yep. the idea there obviously is to sort of try and foster conversations between UK public sector officials and their international counterparts. How, yeah. how valuable do you think it is for the UK civil servants to engage with their international peers? Absolutely essential. Um, and not just their international, their, their peers in, um, in, in other governments, but also in other sectors. Um, um, I, I think there's a tendency in, in civil services for them to be quite insular, uh, both insular in relation to their jurisdiction but also in in relation to sectors um, and there's a huge amount that can be learned um, from peers um, um, in in different jurisdictions but also doing different things in different sectors I think it's crucial and uh, obviously you know with uh, the overarching theme of uh, government transformation and government excellence what is it that you hope that delegates will take away from the conference confidence I think confidence to change um, 
I think both times I've been in government, um, both first time around in the 80s and, and most more recently, um, the thing, the things I regret are where I didn't have the confidence to back my, my instincts and judgment because there were kind of wise sage people saying, oh, sucking their teeth and pursing their lips and saying, oh, I'm not sure that's going to work. Um, you know, very brave decision, courageous decision minister. Um, um, and I hope what they'll take is confidence that you can try new things um, and it's not the end of the world if they don't work. And there are lots of, and, and going back to your point about the um, international, uh, the peer group, you know, support from others. Um, try, learn from what others have, have tried and done and have the confidence to try new things. And, you know, the, the, there is endless scope. Well, thank you. Uh, thanks for spending your, your time with us uh, today. Uh, I'm really looking forward to having you join us uh, on the first couple of days of the GovX conference in November. But it's been a real pleasure. Thank you very much, Francis. Thanks very much. Good to see you. Francis is speaking on the first two days of GovX Digital, focusing on the strategy and execution of central government transformation, delivering a couple of presentations, as well as sitting on a series of panel discussions to talk through government's approach to the challenges of 2020 and beyond. It promises to be a fascinating series of sessions. If you work in the public sector, you can register for the conference for free or pay a small fee to access all of the conference content on demand. The registration details will be listed in the show notes. So thanks for joining me today. It's been great having you and I look forward to you joining us in the next episode of the GovX Show. Bye-bye.